Reflections on Homer's Iliad by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 8 I'm not trying to sensationalize, but I want to start out with a newspaper story. It's a story you've all, I'm sure, heard of. Uh, Dateline Belfast, I read it in last Sunday's paper. Two British soldiers were shot to death Saturday after mourners at an IRA funeral dragged them from a car, beat them with crowbars, and hoisted them naked before cheering onlookers. Witnesses said the sight was unbelievable. They were like animals. The soldiers, blood streaming from their heads, were then pulled to the top of a 12-foot high wall around a football field for the crowd to see, witnesses said. They were then hauled behind a building and shots were heard. A short while later, their bullet-ridden bodies were found in a vacant lot. And then the last uh, one-sentence paragraph that ends this newspaper account is the following. The funeral was completed without further incident. Now, last week, the last chilling statement in that account in Second Kings of Josiah restoring the integrity of Jerusalem by slaughtering the priest of the high places in the northern kingdom ended with the line, and then he returned to Jerusalem. And the funeral was completed without further incident. Come back to this in a second. Book 23 begins, and the text says, Shameless abuse, indeed, he planned for Hector and laid the body face down in the dust beside Patroclus' bed of death. Shameless abuse he planned for the body of Hector. Book 23 is uh, the story of the funeral and the funeral games for Patroclus in the Greek camp, the Argive camp. Achilles tries to sleep and he is visited by the shade of Patroclus in his sleep who, who asks him for an immediate burial. And then he goes on to say, Thou too, Achilles, face iron destiny, godlike as thou art, to die under the wall of high-born Trojans. So he's told, as he is told by so many, that his death is imminent and that he will die before the end of the, of the uh, war. One more message, one behest, I leave thee, not to inter my bones apart from thine. May the same urn hide both our bones. Two things occur here. We are reassured again of the spiritual identity of Achilles and Patroclus. And I think more importantly for the present text, we are told symbolically that the funeral that is about to take place is not only the funeral for Patroclus, but the funeral for Achilles. On the shore, they stacked their burdens in a woodpile where Achilles planned Patroclus' barrow and his own. So we're having the, the funeral of Patroclus, which is also the funeral of Achilles. The pyre is built, the wood pyre for the, for the funeral fire the, to cremate the body is built, and then the, uh, the measure of the value of the fallen warrior is what sacrifices are placed on the pyre, and Achilles places untold sacrificial animals, including 12 Trojan warriors. And then it says, the irony is, and now too... Patroclus's pyre would not flame up, which is that 
there were too many fresh corpses for the funeral ritual to consume. That is to say, something is left over after the ritual. Well, divine help has to be asked for and is provided in the form of winds and the fire flames up and it burns out. I want to go back to last week for a second. All the, the Greeks come up and stab the body of Hector. As soon as they do that, they begin to sing. I think they sang an anthem because their national or tribal identity was reestablished in that sacrificial act. And Achilles begins to talk in the first person plural, we, our. The important implication of this is that sacrificial act was what made the reconstitution of the cultural consensus possible. The cultural consensus recently given a new lease by the social catharsis, which led from the death of the last hero martyr, Patroclus, who is being mourned, to the death of the latest culprit victim, Hector, whose death is being cheered. That is the pattern for the reestablishment of the cultural consensus. It is the pattern in modern Belfast as it was in ancient Troy. It becomes visible as a pattern in modern Belfast and ancient Troy, but it is a pattern even where it is not visible. This literally goes to the heart of the familiar patterns of cultural life. I say heart because the Greek word for heart, one of them, the one that is often used in the Iliad, is also the word for spirit, anger, and courage. It's the word thymos. And I would like to explore the word for a second. The root of that word means to make smoke, to offer a sacrifice, or to act violently. To have heart or to lose heart is the capacity to do one of those. One of the scholars that has studied this word says of the root word of thymos, the following, quote, it signifies to make a sacrifice on one hand and on the other to whirl around like something caught up in a tempest. There's no need, this scholar says, to solve the problem by sorting out which one it really is because it is obviously both. It is to make a sacrifice and to whirl around like something caught up in a tempest. The cultural unanimity accomplished in the blood sacrifice is solemnly affirmed in the funeral. And now, after the formal funeral, this reestablished cultural consensus must be socially consolidated, and it is so in, in the Iliad in the funeral games. The funeral games are the rehearsal for the most harmonious phase of cultural life. The funeral games in Book 23 are the paradigm of how the heroic code is supposed to work. That is to say, how it works in its most harmonious heyday, in the brief afterglow of the cultural unanimity that follows a successful blood sacrifice. That's how the culture should operate, and we're seeing it in a paradigmic form, a paradigm form, that is to say, in the games. The pattern on which the games are, are built is the pattern on which the heroic code is built. 
namely the mimetic rivalry. These are all things that we've talked about in weeks past. It's hard to weave them all in at once. But the mimetic rivalry is given a place to operate. It becomes a source of cultural energy. An interesting metaphor or, or comparison might be nuclear power. It's as though the nuclear power plant being put through its test before going online, you see. And the crucial element in the test is whether or not the safety system, the thing that keeps it from overheating, will work. And if that can be, we can be assured that that will work, it can then go culturally online. And that's what the mimetic rivalry will do. If they can work out the little problems in the games, establishing who is, after all, second lieutenant and who is captain, etc., then we can move it out from the from the playing field. You know, the wars of England were won on the, on the playing fields of Eton. We can move it out of the playing field into the cultural life itself. That is to say, the cultural life based on periodic war. The central contest in the games is the chariot race, and I will come back to it at the end of the day, uh, but there's a perfect paradigm for the whole Greek controversy in the chariot race because the two who are neck and neck for second place in the race, Antilochus and Menelaus, develop a controversy. Antilochus, who is the young son of Nestor, runs Menelaus's uh, chariot into the gully and comes in second place. Menelaus, I'm going to paraphrase this, Menelaus challenges his second place position and the text says that Menelaus is sore at heart takes up the staff. We get to, all the little pieces from book one of the Iliad fall right into place. He's offended. He takes up the staff. He calls a council. He speaks to the lords and captains. He said, we're going to judge this controversy. There will be no favorites. Remember the shield of Achilles, the, the, the city of peace, had the controversies were adjudicated. This will be adjudicated. Everything will be formal. This is not like book one. This is now book 23. They, this is after the successful blood sacrifice. The crisis of distinctions is over. Now they have those forms which give them opportunity to adjudicate these things. He says, I will not win by power and rank. That's how, that's how Agamemnon won in book one. And Menelaus, who is superior to Antilochus in power and rank, chooses not to exercise that superiority. He asked Antilochus to come and swear that he did not run, in, run him into the gully by intent. Antilochus comes and says, I am the younger. You stand higher in both age and rank. The prize, which is a feminine horse, not a woman, the prize, he says, I will give to you, Menelaus. Even though I want it, you're right. You, you're right because you, are, you have uh, the age and authority. Antilochus gives the, the prize to his superior. As soon as he does, of course, Menelaus turns around and says, I'm coming around to your position now, now that my anger has spent itself and you have shown yourself so courteous and respectful, I'm going to give it back to you. You see? So now he has the prize back. Now this is a perfect paradigm for what went wrong in book one. So it was the disappearance of the cultural distinctions which gave rise or, or perhaps was the first symptom of a collapse of cultural 
uh, of cultural order and the emergence of intra-tribal hostility. And now that a successful sacrificial ritual has been carried out, the crisis of distinctions is over, and they recognize these formalities. Equally paradigmatic to book one is the javelin throwing contest. This is going to be between uh, Agamemnon and Meriones. Right before this, Meriones took out his bow and shot a dove in flight, which is no mean feat. So Meriones is probably no slouch with the spear either, the javelin either. Achilles, the supreme diplomat in Book 23, says nothing could be more in juxtaposition to what happened in Book 1. He says to Agamemnon, son of Atreus, considering that you excel us all, and by so much in throwing power, I'd say that you should simply carry off this prize. We'll give the spear, though, to Meriones, if you agree. That's what I propose. Now, a couple of things to point out. Remember in Book 1, Achilles says, the problem with you, Agamemnon, is you don't ever do anything, and you always get the best prize. And here it is Achilles himself who says, let's not ask the Lord Marshal or the commander-in-chief uh, to engage in this contest. Let's just provide the prize. And it's agreed that he does so. Now, the, the, the wisdom of this for cultural life is that not everything can afford to be subjected to the merit system. Otherwise, there will be no cultural arbiters. Somebody has to be exempt from the contest. Otherwise, the, the pecking order controversy would ravage the culture from inside out. Somebody has to be above that. Some king or supreme court or something has to be above that controversy. And in the supreme sort of unconscious wisdom of the tribal forms, they have chosen Agamemnon. And of course, Achilles is too, because Achilles does not take part in these games. And these are the two reestablished sources of authority, at least for a while. Book 24. One thinks of what has been accomplished by the funeral and by the games. But then Book 24 begins, and we see Achilles. Achilles, in rage, visited indignity on Hector day after day. Now, imagine Achilles in rage visiting indignity on Hector day after day. Imagine him in some blind and instinctive repetition of the sacrificial act. What we see here is something that is halfway between the actual sacrifice and its eventual ritual reenactment. We talked about a couple of weeks ago how secretly culture operates on these premises, the actual sacrifice and then the ritual reenactments which reinforce its, its uh, original centering function. And with, when we find Achilles enraged, despoiling the body of Hector day after day, what you have is something that's halfway between the actual sacrifice and its liturgical reenactment. And also a symptom that something is still left to be done. Now, something's left over after, after 
the rituals that have so, so far been accomplished have been accomplished. And it is, of course, what this whole poem has been about, which is the rage of Achilles. That's what's left over. The Greek word ekachi means grieved. And the Greek word echos means grief. These are very likely the root, the etymological roots for the word Achilles. Achilles is the man of grief and grievance. He is the man who has always been able to turn his grief into grievance and therefore convert it into something that is usable in war and controversy. His name tells us who he is. His, as names do sometimes in, in great literature. You know, the, in Death of the Salesman, the man's name is Willie Lowman. Willie, Will with a little trailing Y on the end of it. Will but not Will, Willie. And Lowman. Willie Lowman. Well, his, his name tells us, sums it up for us. Achilles is likewise. His name sums it up for us. He is grief and grievance fighting it out to see which will dominate. The gods, you know, have pretty strong stomachs for uh, things, uh, but even they, Zeus, finally can't take it anymore. Notices Achilles uh, visiting these horrors on the body of Hector and decides that it's time to put an end to it. He sends Iris to, to Thetis and Thetis to, to Achilles and then Iris to Priam, and the message is Priam is to offer a ransom and Achilles is to accept it, and uh, there is no... Achilles offers absolutely no resistance. He says, fine, let it be. Now, Priam, likewise, Priam's wife, Hecabe, does resist momentarily, but that resistance is overcome with an omen. And what is set in motion is the ransoming scene. Now, you remember, again, book one was the, began with the ransoming scene, of the priest of Apollo who came to ask Agamemnon for the return of his child, for his daughter. And now Priam is going to come to his, to, to the one who has been victorious over him, or who is being victorious over him, and ask for the return of his son. The difference between the two, you will notice immediately, is that one of them is alive and one of them is dead. But the paradigm is there. As Priam is loading up the treasure trove to take to Achilles, uh, the last thing he puts on is symbolic of everything. The text says, and finally, he's loading these onto the wagon, and finally, one splendid cup, a gift Thracians had, ma had made him on an embassy. He could not keep this either, as he cared for nothing now, but ransoming his son. I think this cup, this precious cup that he puts on at the very end, has to be seen as a symbol of his willingness to exhaust his cultural resources entirely in order to get Hector's body back. There is no tomorrow. There is no cultural seed corn left in the barn. 
He is not planning to return and establish cultural life. He knows that Troy is finished. And so he holds absolutely nothing back, which is to say that there is no tomorrow for him. He has only one thing left to do, and that is to provide his son with a legitimate burial, and then it's over as far as Prime is concerned. Another thing that reinforces this understanding is what would otherwise be difficult and that is a passage in book 24 where as he leaves Priam essentially disinherits his remaining children it's a totally apparently gratuitous uh, insertion in the text except I think it has to be there because as Priam approaches Achilles I think we have to feel about him that he is childless there is nothing to go back to in the sense of the cultural future. None of his children can do what Hector might have been able to do. So he essentially uh, disinherits them as he leaves and approaches Achilles' hut spiritually childless. Now let me go back now. Now we can understand something that happened back in book 23 which is the parallel on Achilles' side. Achilles turned to another duty now. A, there's a solemn solemnity to this. Apart from the pyre, he stood and cut the red-gold hair that he had grown for the river Spikaios, gazing over the wine-dark sea in pain. When we get to the Odyssey, we'll get a, a lot about the wine-dark sea. But all we get about the wine-dark sea, the wine-dark sea is what separates the warrior from his home. And all we get for Achilles is gazing over it in pain and sorrow. And he cuts his hair, and then we find out what that's all about. Achilles says, Spirkaios, that's the river of his homeland, Peleus, my father's vow to you meant nothing that on my return I'd cut my hair as an offering to you. The old man swore it, but you would not fulfill what he desired. Now, as I shall not see my fatherland, I would confer my hair upon the soldier Patroclus. And he puts his cut hair into the hands of the corpse of Patroclus, moving all to weep. Two things must be said. First of all, what is unsaid about this in the poem and then what is said about it. What is unsaid is that the uh, Mycenaeans wore long hair, the warriors wore long hair, and when the war began, they, they took a vow not to wash it, cut it, or comb it until victory. To cut the hair before the end of the war is to renounce any hope of victory. That's what's unsaid. What is said and what's really more important is that the cutting of the hair back at home was part of Achilles' father's prayer for his return and he knows that that prayer is not going to be answered. And now the cutting of the hair means that there will be no home homecoming, that he will not see his father and will not experience a homecoming and he knows it and so he does it now. The funeral is itself the homecoming. 
the whole great remorse over what has happened will be the homecoming if there's going to be one. In other words, if there's going to be a homecoming, if there's going to be a reunion with the Father, it's got to happen here and now with what's at hand. There's not going to be a victory and there's not going to be a homecoming and there's not going to be a reunion with the Father unless it happens here and now. Like Priam, there's no tomorrow. Everything, Priam takes the last thing out of the cultural cupboard and Achilles cuts his hair. Both of those things represent, I think, that each of these two men puts everything on the line. There is no tomorrow. The cutting of the hair and the emptying of the cultural cupboard represent for Achilles and Priam the stepping out of the, quote, historical world. That's what it means when I say there's no tomorrow. They step out of the merely temporal world, the world that sustains itself and sustains its zeal on reassurances of victories and homecomings. And they both have abandoned those reassurances and have therefore stepped out of that world. Achilles and Priam are now free of that world and therefore uniquely capable of what Paul Ricoeur calls an absolute action. And I want to use Paul Ricoeur's comments on that phrase for a second. Ricoeur says an absolute action is senseless for historians. For an absolute, these are his words, for an absolute action is not understood as proceeding from antecedents or giving rise to consequences, but as the uprooting of a free consciousness from its historical condition. I don't think we can understand what is about to happen to Achilles and Priam except by seeing it as an uprooting of free consciousness from its historical conditions. And what we're about to see demonstrably has no antecedents. The text tells us it has no antecedents. It is utterly new what is about to happen and shocking because it's so utterly new. And, I'm sorry to say, it has no historical consequences. We see it and we see the historical and cultural patterns which it is so distinguished from close back in on it immediately. And now we get to the solemn scene. Priam, the great king of Troy, passed by the others in Achilles' hut, knelt down, took in his arms Achilles' knees, and kissed the hands of wrath that killed his sons. Nothing could be more shocking. Well, maybe it was St. Paul saying, I preach Christ crucified. That, you know, when the messianic expectation was for a triumphant Messiah, maybe that was shocking on a par with this. But this act is literally an unimaginable act 
in terms of the heroic code. I think we could say, symbolically, this is the first time on the planet that it happened. The unimaginable thing happened. The king knelt down and kissed the hands of wrath that killed his sons. And he speaks to Achilles, Remember your own father. Now we've just learned, of course, that Achilles is not going to see his father and he knows it. Remember your own father, Achilles, in your godlike youth. His years, like mine, are many, and he stands upon the fearful doorstep of old age. He, too, is hard-pressed, it may be, by those around him, there being no one able to defend him from bane of war and ruin. Ah, but he may nonetheless hear news of you alive, and so, with glad heart, hope through all his days for sight of his dear son come back from Troy while I have deathly fortune." He may not see you again, but he does not have the corpse, your corpse there. He has hope. And he says, I have none. Achilles, Priam says, take pity on me. Remember your own father. Think me more pitiful by far since I have brought myself to do what no man has ever done to lift to my lips the hand of one who killed my son. Underscores it by saying this is what has never been done. This is the scandal to the heroic code. Now, in Achilles, the evocation of his father stirred new longing and an ache of grief. He lifted the old man's hand and gently put him by. Then both were overborne as they remembered. The old king, huddled at Achilles' feet, wept and wept for Hector, killer of men, while great Achilles wept for his own father as for Patroclus once again, and sobbing filled the room. And sobbing filled the room. Achilles says to Priam, Zeus has two jars, one of good and one of evil. The fortunate ones get a little of each, and the unfortunate ones get evil. Nobody gets just good. Fortunate get a little of both, the unfortunate get evil. And Achilles says, My father Peleus and you Priam got a little of both. And only now does Priam say why he came. He offers ransom beyond measure, which is what the old priest of Apollo offered in book one, and asks for the body of Hector back. 
And now we, fa we find out how fragile this experience is that's happening there. Achilles frowned. Do not vex me, sir, he said. Let me be. Sting my sore heart again, and even here under my own roof, suppliant though you are, I may not spare you, sir, but trample on the express command of Zeus. How fragile this moment. And this is not something... Homer didn't pull this out like a rabbit out of the hat, see. This is still Achilles we're talking about. And he's grieving, but he spent his whole life carefully refining the capacity to turn grief into grievance. And he still has that capacity. Priam falls silent. And Achilles stands up and bolts out of the room. And all his lieutenants follow him. And he goes to the body of Hector, which he has been violating day after day. And he took the ransom wagon. They took the piled up price of Hector's body. One chiton and two capes they left aside as dress and shrouding for the homeward journey. They bathed the body, anointed it with oil. But then, because it is still fragile, they placed it so that Priam could not see the body. And the text says, Foreseeing Hector, he might in his great pain give way to rage, and fury then might rise up in Achilles to slay the old king, flouting Zeus's word. Again, it's so fragile. So after bathing and anointing Hector, they drew the shirt and beautiful shrouding over him. That beautiful shirt and shrouding is Achilles's. Priam has just given it, given it as a ransom to Achilles. And Achilles, remember what Menelaus did with the gift when he gave it back to Antilochus? Achilles turns around and uses it to dress Hector in. Hector died in Achilles' armor. And now he's being buried in Achilles' festal garments. Then Achilles, with his own hands, lifted the body and put it on the stretcher. He is Hector's pallbearer. He comes back into Prime and says the body is ready. And then a strange and in a way too lengthy for apparently too lengthy for this place I think in the text. Achilles uses another paradigm to prime. He says, We are told that even Niobe in her extremity took thought of food. And I'll rehearse the story of Niobe. He tells it here. Niobe had six sons and six daughters. And uh, Leto, the goddess Leto, had only two, Apollo and Artemis. And Niobe thought, Hey, she has two, I have twelve. How about that? And the gods are not they don't take these things lightly. And so Leto caused uh, her two to kill the twelve of Niobe. Apollo killed the boys and Artemis killed the girls. And uh, their bodies laid nine days without being buried. And then the gods made graves for them. Being weak and spent with weeping... Niobe finally thought of food. 
And the story ends, she too long turned to stone, somewhere broods on the gall immortal gods gave her to drink. She turns to stone in her grief at the end, but continues to weep. And Achilles says, like her, we'll think of supper. I will come back to several of these at, in the, at the conclusion. They have a meal. When the meal is over, the following happens. Priam, the heir of Dardanos, gazed long in wonder at Achilles' form and scale, so like a god in aspect. And Achilles, in his turn, gazed in wonder upon Priam, royal in visage as in speech. Both men, in contemplation, found rest for their eyes. Now this is, the meal is over, and in silence, they stare at one another. And marvel at one another. And recognize one another. And I think the best way to see this, to understand what comes from this is to see the face of old Priam looking into the eyes of Achilles a long time and then without looking away continuing to look into the eyes of Achilles saying make a bed ready for me he says, make a bed ready for me as though they had known each other for a thousand years. He says those words, and it's not the words of a, of a suppliant anymore. It's not the words of an old man or a young man or a father or a son. It's the words of a man who has known the person he's speaking to for a thousand years, I think. In those few minutes, looking into each other's eyes, outside of the historical flux for one brief moment, they come to know each other. The fatherless child and the childless father, both with very little longer to live, both caught up in historical convulsions that they can only escape for one brief moment. See each other. The victim and the victor recognize each other. As Hector was dying, right before Achilles killed him, he looked up and he said, I see you now for what you are. But he could only see from inside the historical dynamic. Achilles and Priam now see each other beyond that. The pathos, however, is not over. Achilles, then it becomes very strange. Achilles, it's, the text says this, Then Achilles, defiant of Agamemnon, told his guest, and then I'll get to what he told his guest in a minute, but that phrase, defiant of Agamemnon, seems very strange coming in here. You're not interested in this. I'm not particularly interested in this, but a lot of people are, and it has something to do with what we're talking about, so I was a little aside here. The pronoun is a neutral pronoun. It's just a masculine pronoun. It's not a... We don't know whether he's talking... Really, we don't know whether 
Achilles is talking is being defiant of Agamemnon or defiant of Priam. It just we just can't imagine he's being defiant of Priam. The term Lattimore has translates the term sarcastic. Uh, somebody else translates it deceptively. Uh, Mark Edwards suggests it might be translated gruffy. Um, I like deceptively of Agamemnon, but there is also the other implication. If the pronoun refers to Priam, then I think it should be translated cool now toward him. So we can now read the speech and have it be both ways, sort of like uh, what, what the scholar said about the, word, the root of the word Pimos. It can be either way. Achilles, then Achilles, and we could have defiant of Agamemnon, or we could have it be cool now to Priam, Priam, said this, Dear Venerable Sir, you'll sleep outside tonight in case an Achaean officer turns up, one of those men who are forever taking counsel with me, as, they, as well they may. If one should see you here as the dark night runs on, he would report it to the Lord Marshal Agamemnon, then return of the body would only be delayed. He is being defined of Agamemnon. He is clearly saying, I'm trying to do something. I don't want Agamemnon to get wind of it. But then it goes on. Now, tell me this. Give me a straight answer. How many days do you require for the funeral of Prince Patroclus? I should know how long to wait and hold the Achaean army. This, I think, is cool now toward Priam. He says, we're still in war, you know. How long are we going to postpone it for this funeral? Defiance toward Agamemnon and cold-heartedness toward his traditional foe re-emerges. We see the old Achilles coming back. Both aspects of Achilles coming back. Already, the first signs of the newfound Achaean consensus are crumbling. He is already calling his own shots independently of Agamemnon, negotiating with King Prime of Troy on his own and being defiant of Agamemnon's authority. And he's begin, beginning to treat Priam as the commander-in-chief of the opposing forces. We don't want this. We read this poem. We don't want to read that part of it. That's why there's so little commentary on this part of the poem because we don't want that to be subsequent to that moment of revelation. But an absolute action has no historical consequences. History comes in at the end of the poem. What just happened to them they don't know a story in which that makes sense. And the only thing they can do is return to the story that they know about. Prime takes the body back to Troy. We get the mourning, weeping scenes with Hecabe and Andromache and uh, Helen. And then Hector's pyre is uh, being prepared or his pyre is burned and his funeral urn or jar is uh, being placed in the ground. In a grave dug deep, they placed it and heaped it with great stones. The men were quick to raise the death mound, 
while in every quarter lookouts were posted to ensure against an Achaean surprise attack. The poem ends with two great solemn funerals, one on each side, and the transcendent meeting of the two representatives of the warring parties who recognize each other and fall into each other's arms and weep. Tremendous image. But the poem at the end says what is going to follow is endless cycles of the same old thing. And we don't like that. We think, well, what a bummer. What's a bummer is not what Homer said. What's a bummer is what we as a species have done. Homer simply said, this is what's going to happen. Now, does that make Homer a cynic? No. As a matter of fact, Homer's ability to see it for what it really is, I think, caused him to do some very amazing things which we will go back to in the text in book 23 and book 24 and look at now that we know how he's ended it. Strangely, Achilles uses the Niobe paradigm in book 24 when he talks to Priam. And in that, when he talks about it, he says, She too long turned to stone somewhere broods on the gall immortal gods gave her to drink. Like her, we'll think of supper, noble sir. Well, after she finished supper, she turned into stone. So like Niobe, they are weeping, uncontrollably weeping, gazing at one another in that, in that absolute frozen moment in time and recognizing each other. This is the cosmic recognition scene. These two together for all time, outside of time, the victor and the vanquished, the cosmic recognition between the victor and the vanquished transcends time altogether. Now let's go back to Homer. Imagine you're Homer. First of all, we have to realize that writing has just been, has just been discovered for use for creative poets like himself. Before writing, it was if anything was to be remembered... It would have to be deeds, and the deeds would be retold, but the words would always change uh, because of the way in which the oral tradition works. But the deeds would be remembered, but you would have to go out and perform deeds. But with writing, words can be remembered. And imagine yourself as Homer thrilling to this new possibility. Now, Homer is a creative genius who is, I think, spiritually independent of the cultural paradigm of his time. And he is utterly alone in that independence. This is how I see him. This borders on romanticism, but if you will allow me to pursue the thought in any case. He has available to him writing, and it, he thrills to a possibility. He is independent of his cultural tradition, and he is uniquely so. And the, th and the possibility that he thrills to is that he might be able to send a message like a, like a little message in a bottle to those people outside of that cultural paradigm because there are none inside of it to whom he can communicate it effectively. 
if a message could be encoded, it might be read by those people who are more in a position to understand what Book 24 of the Iliad is all about. Okay, back to the chariot race. We think of chariots as Cecil B. DeMille, Charlton Heston. We shouldn't. A chariot is a war car. You must think of a chariot as a tank. The discovery of a chariot was, was the most awesome military advance, perhaps in history. It was devastating. Old Nestor, in a piece of advice which seems, uh, even for Nestor, uh, obscure unless we take it as intending something from Homer, gives Antilochus, his son, some advice about this chariot race. They're going to race out to this post and come back. And Nestor says, as to the mark, it stands out. You can't miss it. The, the uh, Lattimore translation I will give you a clear mark and you cannot fail to notice it. Now that is Nestor saying it to Antilochus. I think it is also Homer saying to us. I will give you a clear mark and you cannot fail to notice it. He goes on in the Fitzgerald translation. As to the mark, it stands out. You can't miss it. A dry stump, a man's height above the ground, of oak or pine, not rotted by the rain, where the outward course turns home. Around this mark there is smooth footing. It may be a memorial of a man dead long ago or a turning post built in the old days. Now the Prince Achilles makes it, and the poem that's about him, makes it our halfway mark. That is the turning point in the race. Fitzgerald leaves out one line for reasons I do not know. Uh, They're in the Latimer translation, and they are these. Two white stones are leaned against it, one on either side. After, like Niobe, they eat they can weep and turn to stone. Two white stones are leaned against this turning post. Where, as Fitzgerald says, the outward course turns home. A turning point. Now, Nestor, operating without the benefit of the English pun on the word race, but with Homer as his ventriloquist, says, in effect... The whole race is won or lost depending on how that turn is made. A wooden post, the height of a man or perhaps the height itself of mankind, commemorates either a death or a turning point where the victim and the victor the two white stones, after they have exhausted their allegiance to the historical myth, will finally fall into one another's arms and weep. That is the turning point in the race. Their sobbing is the Homeric apocalypse.
which, like the biblical one, will not reveal its history-shattering meaning until we catch up with it. That post is such that weather will not rot it. Is it, the poem seems to ask, is it a marker that yet another victim has died or is it a turning post or a turning point? Before it can be the latter, there will have to be a time when it is both the former and the latter. Until, until then, however, it will continue to be the post reminding subsequent generations that as Caiaphas so aptly and succinctly put it, it is better that one man should die than that the whole nation should be destroyed. Until it becomes the turning point or the turning post, until it becomes the pivot of history, it will continue to mark the place of the sacrificial death. In W.H. Auden's poem, The Shield of Achilles, there is the following passage. Barbed wire enclosed in arbitrary spots where board officials lounged one cracked a joke and centuries sweated for the day was hot. The crowd of ordinary, decent folk watched from without and neither moved nor spoke as three paled figures were led forth and bound to three posts driven upright in the ground. The mass and majesty of this world, all that carries weight and always weighs the same, lay in the hands of others. They were small and could not hope for help and no help came. That is how we humans have, do, and will resolve our most troubling cultural crises until we like Priam and Achilles, exhaust our historical resources and our commitment to the historical myth and fall into each other's arms, which is the Homeric version of what the Christian scriptures call the kingdom. So of Homer's Achilles and of our estimation of the poem that's about him, we could use the words of Richard Wilbur, the last three lines of his poem on another hero, Beowulf, he said this, They buried him next the sea on a thrust of land. Twelve men rode round his barrel all in a ring, singing of him what they could understand. So there's something in this poem yet to be understood. Still in the future. Still anticipating a future event. And I think Homer knew it. And I think he put a, a, a reference in his text about it. And of Homer, we could say what Yahweh said to the 7th century Hebrew prophet Habakkuk. Yahweh said to him, Write the vision down. Inscribe it on tablets to be easily read. Since this vision is for its own time only, Eager for its own fulfillment, it does not deceive. If it comes slowly, wait, for come it will without fail. 
This concludes Reflections on Homer's Iliad by Gil Bailey. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.